0: One of the earliest statements of faith is found in Philippians chapter 2, where content was delivered, objective truth delivered, which would become creedal in form, and the church would look to this, and we do today. Paul writes to the Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God... Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? And it is around this truth, Father, that we gather today because your Son, our Lord, was willing to empty his hands of his place and his privileges and to humble himself taking the form of a human man so that he could die but being God a very God equal with the father capable of paying for all our sins over an infinite amount of time yet in a moment of time this we believe And we're grateful that we can assemble together today around the objective truth of your word. Not our emotion, not our personalities, not our opinions, but your truth. And we do so with great joy even in the way we sing and pray and study today. In Jesus' name, amen. She was born into slavery in Dorchester County, Maryland in 1819. Her mother and father, pure blooded Africans, both of them slaves from the continent. Cornmeal was her main source of nutrition, along with meat, whenever her father was allowed to hunt her fish, which wasn't often. Her biographers record that she slept as close to the fire in those cold Maryland nights as, as possible and remembers sticking her toes into the smoldering ashes to avoid frostbite. At the age of six, she was considered old enough to work all day and was rented out to a nearby family where she was treated brutally, often whipped, eventually sent back after having eaten one of the family's sugar cubes. At the age of 12, she was injured by a slave owner when she refused to help tie up a young boy, a slave who was trying to run away. The blow to her head would cause seizures and headaches at times for the rest of her life. When she was 29 years old, she decided to escape and risk her life in doing so. The other slaves tried to discourage her Asking, what will you eat? When it's dark, how will you know which way is north? She was determined, though, and slipped away in the night in 1849 and eventually made it to freedom. She would later say to her biographers, I had crossed the line and I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land. She got a job in Philadelphia and saved every penny as she planned to go back and rescue family and friends. And she would do that. She would devote the rest of her life to rescuing slaves from the South. Her name was Harriet Tubman, considered one of the most fearless conductors of what was known as the Underground Railroad, that path from South to North. And her nickname was Moses. At one point, uh, there were wanted posters put up throughout Maryland and southward with her picture on them, and a bounty placed on her head by plantation owners and the state of Maryland for the staggering sum of $50,000, and that was 150 years ago, but she would escape time and time again from slave hunters and scent dogs and wild animals she would eventually lead nearly one thousand slaves to freedom she once made the comment that she would have led a thousand more to freedom if they'd only known they were slaves when an early biography was being written about her Frederick Douglass a former slave himself and a well-known and respected business leader in the north abolitionist was asked for his commendation he wrote personally to Harriet Tubman These stirring words, and I quote him I need words of commendation from you more than you need them from me. The difference between us is very marked. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in public, and I have received encouragement every step of the way. I have worked in the daytime, you have worked in the night. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witnesses of your devotion I know of no other slave who willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our people than you have little surprise is it to this day that Moses Harriet Tubman is revered and honored in fact all over our country black and white Asian There's something in all of us that is stirred by the biography of someone who risks everything for someone else. Someone that that gives up their rights for the rights of those that really aren't exercising them. And we read earlier this is what exactly, this is modeled infinitely, perfectly by Christ himself. But there's something in us that's stirred by someone who, against the majority opinion, against culture, says, I will do this. And when everyone thinks it's wrong, later on we recognize it was right. The date has been set, if you've been with us, in our study it's now irrevocable the wanted posters are hung on every post and pillar throughout the Persian Empire the Jews are to die and the reward to any Persian who fulfills the edict would include the implied bounty of whatever they can steal from the Jews before Haman gets his hands on it for the king. In the palace of the king, at this point, undetected is a Jewess who is serving as the queen of the empire. And this crisis will serve to become her defining moment. She and her cousin Mordecai have kept the family secret safe for nearly five years, that they are Jews. Haman, however, the prime minister, only recently promoted, and in retaliation to the insubordination of Mordecai, who refuses to bow to him, discovers the secret. Office staff tell him. Mordecai has admitted to the fact that the reason he won't reverence you is because he is a... Jew, And Haman at at that moment decides to settle an old family score, a family feud going all the way back to the Exodus between the Amalekites and the Jewish people, the descendants of Agag, which is Haman, and the descendants of the Jewish people, which is Mordecai. And he wants to rid the world of the Jews. Now, as you already know, God is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. But neither is Satan. And they are both at work. And this is only one more assault of Satan against the covenant people of God an attempt in this particular point in redemptive history to wipe out the potential of the seed coming from the line of judah as prophesied so at this particular point in redemptive history you have the spotlight (laughs) And, and it's suddenly focused on the frail shoulders of a of an orphan girl who has become queen she just so happens to have won the king's heart she just so happens to have the crown. She just so happens to be related to Mordecai, who just so happens to be promoted to inside the king's gate, which is the administrative offices of the empire. He just so happens, because of that promotion, to hear about a plot to assassinate the king. So he tells Esther, who just so happens to tell the king. What an amazing string of coincidences. These are not coincidences, are they? In fact, there's no such thing As a coincidence. That is our earthbound explanation. Uh, That's our short-sighted commentary. What a coincidence. No such thing. Listen, coincidences are the providential acts of God who prefers to remain anonymous. It is the movement of God who at that moment prefers to remain anonymous. And a defining moment in our lives are those moments when we recognize the providential working of a sovereign God and we surrender our lives to join Him in that work, whatever it may be. Whether it's rescuing slaves or risking the crown or risking your own reputation or your career path or your friendships or your personal comfort, maybe even your own life. The first scene in chapter 4 takes place just outside the administrative office building. I invite your attention there to Esther chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly, and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, that administration building, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. These, these kings just couldn't stand the idea of anybody in sorrow or anybody grieving. Of course, you know, a little later on, Nehemiah will show up and he'll be in danger because he just happens to have a sad expression on his face. These kings didn't want anybody in their presence, you know, who wasn't smiling. They were that insecure. So here's Mordecai. He's He's recently revealed himself as identifying with the Jewish people. And so it's all out in the open now. No need to hide. I mean, the edict is out there, and he's openly wailing. He's literally crying a cry. He's lamenting, wailing. Now, in our Western world, we don't do that for the most part. We hide our sorrow behind veils and handkerchiefs, but not in the Middle East. Maybe you've seen that part of the world perhaps on a news commentary or a video clip as a mob is pushing a casket overhead through the crowd while everyone, men and women, are wailing. This is exactly what's happening here. Mordecai is holding nothing back. He's dressed in dark, rough goat hair clothing called sackcloth because it was cloth that made sacks closest thing we can think of is burlap today he would have been wearing it next to his skin to further demonstrate his preoccupation with pain he's torn his clothing according to their custom which was the outward symbol of a torn heart a broken heart And he's not dressed in sackcloth. He's dusting his head and his beard with ashes. He's weeping and he's wailing outside the palace walls. And I want you to know this is the customary Jewish action that involved mourning and grieving sin as well as holding special desperate times of prayer for deliverance. And that's what I believe he's doing. Now you might not be convinced from this one action alone maybe he's just really upset and rightly so I want you to notice he's not the only one verse 3 in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came there was great mourning among the Jews and note this with fasting weeping and wailing and many are even laying on sackcloth and ashes the only other time in the Hebrew Bible where you find these three verbs in exactly this construction is in the book of the prophet Joel in chapter 2 Now the individual words for fasting and weeping and wailing or mourning appear over and over again in the Old Testament but never together just like this I found it interesting that many Hebrew scholars believe this is a this is something that would have been immediately Uh, connecting Ezra's construction, as he wrote here under inspiration, with the earlier prophecy of Joel. The only other time this phrase appears, in this manner, where he says to the people, return to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and wailing or mourning. There is no longer a hidden agenda with Mordecai, who is as the highest official in the land, representing the Jewish people, is, I believe, spearheading, by his own example, this call of Joel, chapter 2, back to God. I also agree with commentators who would say in verse 16, where Esther will ask Mordecai to get all the Jews who live in Susa to fast for her, that that Hebrew construction, she is clearly indicating the request for intercessory prayer. Esther's not quite there yet, though, is she? In fact, that's ahead of the story. She wants to find out why Mordecai's dressed in sackcloth. She knows he's grieving. Perhaps somebody's died, and she begins to grieve, too. She's got to get the details. What's happening, what's happening. So she has her attendant go out and try to give him some clothes, a new suit. Maybe that'll cheer him up. He refuses. Verse 5 informs us that Esther has her personal eunuch go out and find out what all the ruckus is about. She's evidently been sequestered away in the queen's quarters. She's heard from other members of her staff that Mordecai is wailing away outside. There's been some kind of tragedy. It's obvious she doesn't know exactly what it is. In fact, it's possible that she doesn't know what the edict was all about. So she sends Hathach, her personal attendant, no doubt her bodyguard to go outside and get the details now if i can summarize for the sake of time a little while later he comes back to her quarters armed not only with a copy of the edict which she probably cannot read he reads it for her mordecai asks him to explain it to her gives her the stunning news that the jewish people are going to be wiped out by order of her husband and the prime minister. And, and then there's this bobshell that Mordecai says, you go and tell her, verse 8, the middle part, you, you tell her to go into the king and implore his favor and plead with him for her people. You've got to be kidding. Do you see how loaded that phrase is? No one knows these are her people. She's kept that secret hidden from the king and his advisors. You want me to come out in the open? Mordecai, you've evidently forgotten something. And uh, let let me remind you, and so she rather chides him somewhat softly in verse 11 by reminding him of an obvious legal problem. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he, the king, has but one law... That he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. So Esther sends Hathak back out there. Go out and remind Mordecai that there's a little bit of a problem with this. A legal problem. Nobody walks into the Oval Office without an appointment. In fact, back then, you lose your head. It's an affront to the authority and the, the deity-like status of the king... You just don't do this. And then, by the way, Esther throws in this little personal problem. You see at the end of the verse, and I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Many Old Testament scholars believe that this is an indication that a hazardous interest in her is now on the wane. As far as Esther is concerned, the timing couldn't be any worse. You know the old saying when you marry a child of the devil you eventually run into problems with your father-in-law? And is Esther ever in trouble now? And and I want you to see how how the devil has her, it would seem hopelessly pinned down. If she remains silent The edict is going to be carried out. And surely somebody, in fact, perhaps it's even Mordecai, is going to spill the beans. It'll get out. But if she goes to the king, she's not only asking help for her people. I don't think that's a big issue. It's a big issue, but I don't think it's the biggest issue. She's actually going to have to admit that she's deceived him. He thought she was a Persian. It was already bad enough that he had gone against the tradition of the Persian Empire by marrying and giving the crown to a woman who was not related to the seven noble families of Persia. His grandfather had instituted that tradition. He could have many wives, but the queen, the one bearing the crown, had to be related to one of the seven noble families, his seven inner circle. So now he's going to discover that his queen whom he didn't pull from those families, only worse, she belongs to a family and, and I've just ordered their death. The people will think he must be an idiot and this is not the kind of man who will be considered an idiot. He's not the kind of man to be humiliated and embarrassed publicly. In fact, he was a few years earlier, and that queen, many scholars believe, was beheaded. Then there's this other problem with telling the king that many overlook. To get to the king and you dig into the the history and you get your Bible customs books out and your encyclopedias and you can find it too, it's really not a secret but it was interesting for me to find out for the first time to get to the king in the Persian kingdom you you were arranged to meet with him by order of priority and the one who determined the order of that priority was the Kiliarch the supreme commander and the supreme commander happens to be Haman so she can't appeal to him and admit her reason for coming before him without telling Haman and then the secrets out and he'll rub her off no doubt some other way and then you just add to that the fact that the king really isn't interested in seeing her anymore and she's hopelessly stuck and so as you know perhaps she decides to do nothing except hide behind the law. And now I have no doubt that Mordecai anticipated her fear and her hesitancy. He knows this is a long shot. I think while he's sitting in the ashes outside the king's palace, he's he's formulating a divinely inspired uh, response. And so when Hathak comes back to him and says, you got this issue of legality, obviously you know Mordecai, Haman would be in the way and she wants you to know as well, the king isn't really calling for her anymore. He has ready what we'll just simply call three defining moment incentives. In fact, it's one of the greatest speeches in human history, and it serves to challenge us in applicable ways to this day. Look at verse 13. Then Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews here's defining moment incentive of number one you can't escape in the palace don't even think Esther I know what you're thinking but don't even imagine it that for a moment you're gonna be safe in, in the palace while all the Jews are massacred in every province you you cannot hide behind the curtains of your apartment you can't hide underneath the crown as the queen of Persia. This is, a, this is kind of a reality check. He, he goes right for it with his opening statement. You don't stand a chance. The secret is going to get out. Probably even now, people more people are putting the pieces together. So you might as well admit who you are. You know, it's interesting, and I don't think ironic, that Esther is the only character in this drama of whom we're given both names her Hebrew name and her Persian name. Her Hebrew name, we were told earlier, was Hadassah, which means flower or blossom. Esther is her Persian name. You know what I think is happening here? In a very real sense, the defining moment is boiling down to which name she will decide to live out Hebrew or Persian in my brief travels to other countries I've met numerous believers and when they've told me their name it's a name out of the Bible and I'll usually say that's not your given name, is it? No, no, it isn't. And they'll smile and say, that's, a, that's, my, that's my Christian name. Daniel, Peter, Paul, Jeremiah, just wonderful names that they choose at their baptism. And, and for many believers around the world, their baptism is this defining moment where they choose this name and they want the rest of their lives to be defined by that biblical character, that biblical name. You know, is, when, you, when you think about it, we all have two names, don't we? We all have a family name, maybe a middle name in between the first and the last, but that's your family name. And then we have a given name because of our relationship with Christ. It's the name, what? Christian. 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 And aren't defining moments in our lives those moments when we decide which name we're going to live out? Mordecai is effectively telling Esther to identify with and to operate by virtue of her relationship with the covenant people of God. You're a Jewess, Esther. Not only admit it, but live by virtue of it. Here's a defining moment instead of number two. Not only is Esther warned that she can't escape in the palace, she's reminded that she cannot erase God's promise. I want you to notice the next phrase in verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish you and your father's house will perish isn't a reference to the edict It's a reference to divine judgment but I want you to go to that earlier part if you remain silent at this time you need to know that relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another machom, another place Mordecai is effectively saying that he has identified with God he says relief and deliverance will come from another machom. This, this word translated place is a word that the Jews would use to refer to God. He is our place. He is our machom. Now Mordecai doesn't know what God's up to. He doesn't know if, if, if he, Mordecai, or Esther will be allowed to survive this edict, but he does state his belief in the fact that deliverance will come God will keep his promise. There will be a remnant. It will come from this place. God will work. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, along with numerous Hebrew commentaries dating back some 1,000 years ago, all viewed this as a veiled allusion to God. He will keep a remnant. He will keep His promise. You can't escape in the palace. You can't erase God's promise. The most effective of the three incentives He's building toward is this one. You should not evade your position. The famous words of Mordecai are etched there in the last part of verse 14. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther, you got to see it. You need to see it. This is God's doing. This was more all along. This was more than 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 your crown and my career. <laughs> this was the hand of God to place you by the king's side to preserve the people of God. And by the way, to this day, this is the greatest incentive for standing up for Christ. Isn't it? It isn't just about the fear of death. Although the older you get, the more you want to make sure your life's in line, because you look in the mirror and you see mortality. But it's more than the fear of death, even though we know beyond is our Father's house. The incentive for, for those defining moments is more than judgment. Even though the older we get, we sound more like the Apostle Paul, who looked forward to what was next and standing before Christ as he described the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where he would be rewarded for living for Christ. It's more than the fear of death. It's more than facing that judgment. It's about being involved with God in in fulfilling the plan and purposes of God that he has for this moment, this generation, this season, this county, this state, this country, this time. Do we see it? To me, this is this is the the exciting mystery of, of the synergy between the providence of God and the obedience of his children. The work of God and the work of his sons and daughters. Think of it this way the same Lord who said, I will build my church. Said, now go out and make disciples and baptize them and teach them and Teach them everything I've commanded for them to observe. He said, I will build my church. Then he tells us, go build it. It's the synergy of God's purposes combined, as Paul would use the phrase, co-labor with God to see his purposes come to pass. He he isn't going to come down here and teach that third grade Sunday school class. He isn't going to meet with those small group of women or men for Bible study. He isn't going to park cars. He isn't going to put money in the offering plate for ministry and facility. He isn't going to write curriculum for Bible studies. Do we live with that sense of divine destiny? that God could use us, that he has something in mind for you and for me, it might be a sink full of dishes. It might be a classroom full of children. It might be a shop filled with tools. It might be a a cubicle filled with paper that you got to face tomorrow morning. But is that all we see? Is that all we see? Or do we see this divine destiny and and this incentive that, that we have been invited to join God in fulfilling whatever His purposes are and the voice of God whispers to us from the shadows, I have plans for you. I don't know about you, but that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. No matter what the drudgery of the task may be, It's that we are involved, we are invited to work with God in every arena where you've been placed. Everywhere you are is His appointment. I was reading recently a book on leadership by an author who attends here, a New York best-selling author, name of the book is Rascal. It struck me. That's what my mother used to call me, so it interested me in reading it. But he said there are three levels of motivation, three different levels of motivation. The first level is physical concerns, physical safety. The second level is recognition and respect. The third level is motivation along the lines of having a purpose and a sense of Destiny. It's interesting that Mordecai graduates up that same grid. I know you're concerned about your safety, but you better get real about that. And you need to understand this issue of respect and legacy as it relates to your family and your father's house. But listen, Esther, you're the queen. At this moment, that really doesn't matter. You've got personal connections and power, but at this at this point, that's not the bigger issue. You want personal comfort and safety, but that needs to be set aside. They don't matter most. Can you imagine, Esther, what's behind all of this? What was behind that pageant that you won? What was behind the king's selection of you above a thousand four hundred and sixty other beautiful women? According to Herodotus, the historian. What was behind the wedding? What is behind your title as queen? Esther, is that all you see? Is that all you see? Can you see that at this moment, in this generation, in this kingdom, at this time, you have arrived for such a moment as this? This is your hour. Stand up. Become Known for who you are. Speak, but whatever you do, do not be silent. Don't be silent. This is your defining moment. Esther responds in this closing scene. She puts into motion three decisive actions. It's rather breathtaking how far she comes and how fast. First, she summons the Jews to fast for her. She's literally, by the way, applying the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, which reads then in the next couple of verses, after the ones I've already read to you, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Fast. Implied in that, of course, is prayer. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, the second thing she does is she states her identity with the Jewish people. The next phrase I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. In other words, we will be in this together. Many scholars believe that Esther had surrounded herself with Jewish attendants. More than likely, this eunuch, Hathach, was a Jewish man out of sympathy and concern. They knew the secret before anybody else would. She entrusted the secret, in fact, to Hathak. For nearly five years as they have served her, they probably wondered why this Persian queen cared so much about Jewish people. But now they knew. She was one of them. Thirdly, she not only summons the Jews to fast, she not only states her kinship her identity with the Jewish people. Finally, she surrenders to the providence of God. Verse 16, again, the latter part, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. Wow. Wow. She's changed from fear to faith, from hesitation to, to determination, from concern about her own personal safety, which was her first response, to concern for the safety of her own people's survival. Reminds me of uh, David. You remember when he goes out to see how his brothers are doing at war and brings along some cheese and bread for them and for the commander? he's, He's the run of the litter. He's been keeping sheep back home and he arrives and Finds out as he overhears Goliath, blaspheming God. Decides that he'll take him on with his slingshot. And his brothers and those around him say, Look, it's better off that you go back to the sheep. And and, and he makes that classic statement as he looks around and he says these words. Is there not a cause? He saw what they did not. There was more to it than that. Is this all you see, a, a soldier who blasphemes, the impossibility of hand-to-hand combat with him? Is that all you see? Is there not a cause, and behind that, the cause? This is Esther here. She comes to recognize, as one author put it so well, there is no safety in a significant life, and there is no significance in a safe life. And what are we trying to do with our lives? Make everything safe. A.W. Tozer, in a book I'm reading, made the wonderful statement. He said, as a as the president of a missionary organization, it strikes me as I've watched the history of it that the power and the movement of God so often hovered over the frontier. where people step out in faith and stand up for Christ. And so, Esther takes her stand, but first she'll kneel, fast, and I believe according to the call of the prophet, return back to God. Let me make two quick observations about defining moments that are at work in your life and mine every day, perhaps more than we realize. Number one, defining moments are simple steps of obedience where we act like the disciple we want to become. Whether or not you brush past those fears or you brush away your tears, you act like the disciple of Christ you want to become. There is a disciple out there and we'd like to become that disciple. We'd like to become it overnight. We'd like to decide I will become that person tomorrow morning. Now, there are a lot of little steps. And a lot of them go backward and then forward and backward and forward. But defining moments are those moments. It's going to happen to you tomorrow, by the way. It's going to happen to you in that defining moment when you decide whether or not you will open this book and read. That's a defining moment. Where you become a little more like the disciple you want to become. That defining moment is going to happen in the cafeteria. Where you decide in that moment if I'm going to bow my head and pray before I eat my lunch. That can be a defining moment. Are you willing? That defining moment is when you reach out to someone who works with you and you tell them something of your testimony, or you invite your, your boss or a neighbor to an event here at church. Defining moments when you, you, you accept the invitation. It could be getting out of bed tomorrow morning and teaching children in your home. It, it can be showing up at 8 o'clock ready to work where everyone else is looking for ways to get out of work. Secondly, defining moments are those small steps of faith where you trust God like he really deserves to be trusted. We often think of grieving the heart of God by overt acts of disobedience. I think we grieve him daily by not trusting him in the way that he really deserves to be trusted. Eugene Peterson the author of the paraphrase, The Message, wrote these words about Esther. The moment Haman surfaced, Esther began to move from being a beauty queen to becoming a saint, from being an empty-headed sex symbol to being a passionate intercessor, from the busy life in the harem to the high-risk venture of speaking for and identifying with the people of God. She needed to start living like that. And God deserved to be trusted like that too. And so she says, I will stand and I will speak. I will give everything I have and everything I am. I will risk it all. But I will not remain silent anymore. With your heads bowed for just a moment, I can tell you, that it would be my prayer and hope that everyone in here has had a defining moment of salvation in fact if you try to do something tomorrow for God without having been converted by faith in Christ to God first you're just turning over a new leaf what you need is a new life if you don't have that defining moment perhaps God's Spirit has provoked your thoughts your heart your mind in some arena, some area, to help you with that defining moment that serves as a foundation for what I've been speaking of as I've been expounding this scripture for the sake of the edification of the believer. Where you need to say, Lord, I'm willing to obey you with that little simple step, no matter how difficult or mundane Maybe you need to say, Father, I'm willing to trust you like you deserve to be trusted. Do you talk with him for just a moment? Let's close by singing this wonderful little chorus. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary.